0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books and Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Till Mostolansky about his new book, A on the Moon, Entangling Modernity Along Tajikistan's Pamir Highway. Till, welcome to the show.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: And so tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: I'm uh, an anthropologist, Um, I uh, work mostly on Central Asia, um, but also neighboring areas in Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, and um, uh, more recently also China. And in recent years, I've um, really extended my scope um, also to diasporic uh, communities. Come from the region, but live far beyond um, these places in, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, China, and um, Central Asia more broadly. Um, I've done work in Europe. Um, I've lived and worked in Singapore and Hong Kong, where I also interacted with people um, from the region. Um, I uh, sort of, in terms of my f- research focus, I've um, over the years. Uh, I've come to see my field sites, um, I guess, in Central Asia as really part of a crossroads. Crossroads that um, uh, provides people in the region itself with connections um, to very different places around the world. And uh, what I um sort of really what I'm passionate about in my work is um, to study these connections via um a series of specific topics that I think um can shed light on um, on different dynamics that uh, very strongly define these connections and in this regard um, I've I've over the past uh, sort of 10 15 years I've looked at different topics um, in depth that I think um, also feature in the book and that we can talk about afterwards um, uh, in more depth um, uh, Islam has certainly been one one of these topics that I've looked at um, uh, in depth um, over the past uh, decade in particular, And um, I'm interested in the various resource, resources that Muslim identity provides for people in Central Asia. Um, a resource to connect, um, but at the same time also to distinguish um, themselves uh, from, from people in other places. It's, it's really an interest I've had, um, since, uh, conducting research in Kyrgyzstan from my first book, which was, um, about the legacy of Russian colonial and Soviet discourse on nomads in Kyrgyzstan. And there Islam has a particular, um, place that, um, I got interested in over the years. Another topic that I think is, uh, probably more important, um, for the book that we're talking about is um, infrastructure. Uh, It's, in other words, I'm interested in material networks, um, networks of built environment, of uh, technology that link people in in particular ways. And these networks are often um, emblematic for both the establishment and the decline of political rule. And I guess in the context of uh, post-Soviet Central Asia, infrastructure has a very um, important meaning. Um, for people in everyday life as well. So this is uh, a topic, especially infrastructure, and then sort of the link to Islam. They have been framing themes of my doctoral dissertation, and they sort of fed really importantly also into um, Azan on the Moon, um, where I'm interested in the contradictions um, of modernity that uh, relates to infrastructure um, Islam, people's identities um, on the ground, materiality, and really uh, the afterlives of the Soviet Union along this highway.
0: And so, thinking of all of these things, how did you come up with your title for the book, "Azan on the Moon"?
2: Um, it's uh, it's a, it's an interesting and, and very complex um, question uh, that uh, sometimes. Um, I, I tend to give a very short answer, which I think is right. And then there's a, a much longer answer, which comes with quite a bit of historical and theoretical um, baggage. Now, to start with uh, sort of the simple answer, it's um, pretty straightforward. I, um, During my fieldwork, I very often um, I hang out with my um, informants on the streets of um, settlements along the Palmyra Highway, in particular, Murgab, which is a town along this road in eastern Tajikistan, um, n- not far from the border with Afghanistan and China. And with my informants, I would sit on uh, benches in front of the house or we would stroll uh, through the bazaar. And then during uh, prayer time, um, especially uh, towards the evening, uh, one could hear the azan, which is the Islamic call for prayer, which um, emerged uh, very often from the main mosque. And in these moments, the landscape um, in these places along the highway really looks extremely serene, but also surreal. And um, I say surreal here because um, the environment of the eastern palmiers where this highway is located, is extremely barren, it's extremely dry, and it gives gives one an almost lunar feeling. And, of course, this um, could be for, as first seen as an outsider um, perspective that I come with as an anthropologist. But the interesting point is that many of my informants um, related to this, um, this take on, on this lunar landscape. And they joke themselves about living on the moon, very far away from the rest of humankind in one way or the other, but at the same time also very strongly um, connected in the in in a global perspective. Now, the the more complex answer um, I write about in the book, um, in quite a bit of detail, at the very beginning, where I open with an ethnographic vignette. And there I describe how during my fieldwork, I came uh, sort of across a range of um, different Islamic conversion narratives which are um, usually published in popular booklets. But uh, more recently, and this happened mostly towards the end of my um, fieldwork, were also shared via mobile phones. Now, one of the the central narratives that I encountered during my fieldwork argues that the American astronaut Neil Armstrong, who was the first man on the moon, um, he converted to Islam after he realized that he had heard um, the Islam, the, the, the Azan, the Islamic um, call to prayer when he stepped first on the moon. Now, for my informants, this is a really wonderfully um, <laughs> resonating narrative uh, because it relates to their own lunar landscape that they live in. It relates to um, the rise of public uh, performances of piety along the Pamir Highway, especially since uh, the end of the Soviet Union. And um, it really also speaks to um, the way people in the region have been socialized into a world of technology, something that is not very often acknowledged when when people talk about this region that is usually considered um, remote. Um, Many people in the region are mechanics, they're engineers, they're road constructors, they're um, scientifically trained. And for these people, the idea um, is very appealing that with the finest modern technology, which allows um, humans to fly um, to the moon, to build highways, such as the one in the Palmiès, all these um, techno- technological means eventually lead back to God. And that's sort of a very powerful narrative that I start um, the book with. And when I was writing the book, I thought that... Um, this narrative needed to stand at the forefront because because it gives a nice entry um, into the different topics that the book is defined by, but it also um, somehow links different worlds. And I thought an audience, especially an English um, speaking audience uh, might be able to uh, more easily relate to the topics in this book. If they see something that also relates to uh, their own cultural background, such as the moon landing. Now, in terms of the topics that come in, if we think about, um, uh, the, the conversion narrative of Neil Armstrong, it's, of course, uh, piety, it's, um, contested ideas of tradition of, um, how humankind should, um, sort of live together, um, sociality, uh, a global outlook. But then, of course, as I mentioned, technology, ideas of modernity, remoteness, but also peacefulness, which is an important, um, Uh, topic in the region as well. And then the final step when it came to the production of the book, um, I somewhat realized that uh, the title could also appeal to a much broader Muslim public, which I didn't think so much about when when I came across these conversion narratives. I always saw them as something more local. But um, uh, after my PhD, I moved as a postdoc to Singapore, Um, where I also finalized my book manuscript at the National University of Singapore. And there, Malay Muslims could immediately connect to the book and the book title, because um, they actually knew about Neil Armstrong's alleged conversion, uh, as people along the highway did.
0: That's pretty fascinating that that story, you know, reaches into that area of the world. It's really telling. Um, So... How did you find yourself in the Pamir region? You talk about it as a little bit of a lunar landscape. How does one find themselves in this landscape if you are not a person from this region?
2: Well, um, I have really had, I had a gradual entry into this region. Um, and I think the first time I read about um, the Pamirs and um, the, the Eastern Pamirs in, in, in particular, um, that I um, focus on in the book, that was probably around 15 years back during my undergraduate studies at the University of Vienna. Uh, back then, I read a lot about Kyrgyz because I studied um, Kyrgyz language um, in Vienna in the context of Ori- Oriental studies. And I read a lot about the Kyrgyz of the Eastern Pamirs in Tajikistan as well. There wasn't much academic literature, but there was quite a bit of popular um, literature. And I was really fascinated um, by what I read And I always thought this in one way or the other, I didn't have a defined idea yet of what I wanted to do, but I thought this could be a good topic for research at one point. And what um, also really struck me is that back then, very few people um, who researched Kyrgyz communities looked much beyond Kyrgyzstan itself. And I realized that essentially nothing had been done on people living uh, along this highway, the Pamir Highway. And then I finished my studies in Vienna. I didn't pursue any research in Tajikistan at that point, but I got the opportunity to work for a project of the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation in Tajikistan in uh, 2007. And uh, that was a wonderful opportunity for me. Uh, for me, um, living in Tajikistan enabled me to travel to the Pamirs, and I was really lucky to. Meet uh, very different people from the region. Kyrgyz, on the one hand, who are a min- minority in um, in in the Pamirs at large, but they're stong- strongly represented along the the highway and in the eastern Pamirs in particular. Um, but I also met um, lots of Pamiris um, who are the majority in 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 the Pamirs and. Uh, they offered me uh, incredible insights into the complexity of the area. And then a little later, uh, after I completed my work in Tajikistan, I got the chance to enter a doctoral program um, at the University of Bern in Switzerland. And um, at that point, it was clear to me that I wanted to write about the Palmias, even though I did not yet know that uh, my focus would be on that road. Um, So the actual topic... um, of the book in the context of the of the region, we look about talk about the social life of infrastructure and relate, related um, ideas of modernity. They developed when I really lived um, along the Palmyra Highway from around 2008. It wasn't it wasn't a constant. Um, it was a back and forth, and that probably also informed um, uh, my methodology. I had to teach uh, back in Switzerland, and I could come for um extended periods of time and live with people along the Pamir highway and it uh, it was a rough life it's it was definitely it's definitely rough because um there's uh these days there's not much um electricity uh, water supply is is restricted it's thin air so one has to get accustomed to thin air like in any high altitude environment and um if one comes as an outsider one certainly has to be prepared for very environmentally, very rough um, um, winter conditions and um, alt- high altitude conditions. But I should also say that um, if I compare myself with um, PhD students I observe now, I interact with at the institution I work with in Geneva, and they um, actually travel to the Afghan parts of the Pamirs and live there where there are very few roads and where one has to walk for days to reach um, settlements and where there's no electricity at all at times, um, I was probably in a pretty luxurious uh, situation in that context. Now, uh, the bulk of my research was really kind of um, traveling back and forth between the city of Osh in southern Kyrgyzstan and the city of um, Harok, which is at the Tajik-Afghan border. And one encounters linguistically a really interesting variety and, um, and there's a lot of change if one travels along the Palmy Highway in cultural terms because um, the, the Kyrgyz influence, um, Kyrgyz language uh, sort of extends around halfway um, along the Palmy Highway. And then at one point, um, uh, the, the linguistic landscape changes into Pamir languages, which are very distinct from from what Kyrgyz speak. And um, differences are also established in uh, terms of religious orientation. Uh, most Kyrgyz are actually Sunni Muslims and um, a majority of Pam- Pamiris who live along the Pamir highway, they uh, speak uh, Pamir languages, but are also um, Shia Ismaili Muslims. And this creates um, very, very fascinating um Um, intercommunal dynamics um, that I also write about in the book. But my intention was um, really not to focus on um, questions of language, ethnicity and religion in the first place, Um, because at one point um, in my fieldwork, I noticed that my informants reasoned actually a lot more about um, questions such as the condition of the road, about their lack of infrastructure, the idea that state services um, were not accessible anymore. And they both in, um, um, in, in Pamiria and Kyrgyz context, people um, reasoned about um, how to li- live a good life, a, an ethical life amidst um, all these new technologies um, that they're facing or that, that they are not accessible um, to them and also in light of really increasing political pressure by the central government. And when I worked on um, turning my material, my data into first a dissertation and later a book manuscript, I found that the lens of infrastructure and modernity um, provided me with um, a really good opportunity to, on the one hand, fruitfully link with what my informants um, sort of thought was relevant uh, to their lives, which is not necessarily um, sort of the immediate difference um, in ethnic and linguistic terms uh, in the region, but um, really sort of this overarching framework of um, infrastructure and modernity. And I could link these conversations with my informants um, also with ongoing debates in anthropology, which was very helpful uh, when structuring the book.
0: And so getting into the heart of the book and in your early chapters, you kind of discuss the, rele- the relevance of modernity in terms of the region and how modernity has multiple meanings in this region. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you explore that?
2: Well, debates about modernity are um, still quite frequently informed by um, an underlying assumption that modern places and people can mostly be found in urban centers or in the proximity of urban centers, of economic hubs, and perhaps seats of political power. And uh, this is certainly, historically, this has been very strong, um, uh, the case for debates in the West. But... um, uh, my my work and life experience in um, places like Singapore and Hong Kong um, have really also shown me that um, this is also increasingly the case in Asian contexts, perhaps also in the Middle East, where we can observe the accumulation of wealth, which um, gives completely new I- rise to completely new ideas of the city. And um, the places that I researched are. Not urban in in the in the classical sense of the term, so thinking about modernity there has um uh, very specific implications that i um uh, would like to talk about a little bit um of course there's there are very good reasons to, to to think about um modernity as being linked to the city in many ways because if one comes with an an institutional definition of modernity that um strongly linked to um, capitalism then I guess this choice also makes a lot of sense in um, sociology and history. But um, there is always the question, and that's a question that arise in my book, um, what about all the historical and contemporary settings um, such as uh, places along the palmyra highway that we need to ignore if we sort of come with this definition, a normative definition of modernity? And in Azan on the Moon, I try to approach this. I try to approach modernity um, sort of from coming from a perspective that attempts to perhaps avoid this assumption a little bit and um, to try to disentangle modernity and uh, this idea of capitalist accumulation um, uh, to some extent. And uh, in this, I follow um, a sociologist, uh, which I've, I'm quite fond of, Goran Terborn who really suggests looking at modernity um, as consisting of specific time orientations. And this is an idea that I tried to put forward in the, in the book um, to some extent extent. Terrebonne talks about time orientations that are um, on the one hand expressed in specific uh, social settings. And they, um, in this regard, they surface in uh, in competing master narratives about modernity, um, which form what he calls entanglements. And these can be locally very specific, but, um, and that's something I observe um, in my book and write about it, they're also, uh, most of the time, also linked to really processes on a global scale and much broader ideas of modernity. And I would I would argue that the Neil Armstrong story already stands uh, for such connections. And therefore, it also provides ground to actually connect um, different audiences, precisely because it is in many ways locally specific, but um, uh, it is a way to also speak uh, possibly to an American or a European audience. Now, why um, is this all important for um, the study of the Palmy Highway? one could ask. And people in the region um, that I study, they um, do look back to very large-scale modernization projects um, in the Soviet Union of which the highway itself um, is uh, sort of one of the central examples. It's a a highway that we should not imagine as, um, sort of a highway probably in the United States, um, but also in Europe, we would find uh, very different types of roads that are defined as highway. It's, um, it's a paved road. It's not always in, in good condition, but it does the job of, um, connecting people in this region, um, to surrounding regions. And that's the most important feature of this road. And it's a road that was constructed, um, uh, back in the 1930s. That's at least when the construction began. But it really remained a very important project of modernization, a prestige project, I'd say, until the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And when people look back um, and they think about the, the development of the road and what it means um, to their lives, it is not just the, the, the materiality of the road that matters here. It's, um, the memory of state provisioning in the Soviet Union, that was very important. It's, it's the idea of welfare services um, that framed people's lives. And these services were embedded in a, a political discourse in the Soviet Union that clearly depicted people along this highway as um, modern citizens of the Soviet Union who were on a par with the inhabitants of um, larger cities in this, in this, in this political context. And if we look at um, the c- contemporary life along the highway, uh, we see contrast. Um, contemporary life along the highway is marked by um, a sense of being in the margins of Tajikistan as a state, and that's not only a territorial marginality, it's a politically and socially um, um, important form of marginality that clearly has implication. For people's livelihoods as well, and then we look at different actors who emerge: um, NGOs, um, religious reformists, um, nationalists, local scholars, and all these actors they offer um, people along the highway a range of alternative promises. Um, they promise them to reconnect them to the modern, to the modern Soviet past. They um, They promise them to leave behind this past or they promise them a completely new and bright future that is again defined by modernity. And uh, if we talk about um, especially religious um, reformists, reformists, they often strive towards a type of modernity that is in many ways perfected by um, religious tradition. And we should always um, sort of see these processes as happen happening within um, a, a sort of a very specific context of marginality. And um, here we mostly talk about ongoing processes of economic and political exclusion. So a modernity is is really the guiding theme for the book, um, with all its different um, aspects, uh, political, cultural, Um, material etc but in order to kind of keep the book readable and not to um repeat myself i i decided to focus on a few topics which um i believe highlight these dynamics um very clearly in the case of the palmier highway and um Therefore, I, I particularly focus on um, identity in the first place. I talk about um, Islam, also reconnecting to um, sort of one of my fundamental um, research interests over the past um, decade, and um, uh, I focus on uh, ideas of the state and what the state state's role in the establishment establishment of modernity um, is.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: And your, your stories from the field, your informants, the way you highlight them in your work, it's very interesting. And I think it really does draw the reader in and highlight all of those things that you want to discuss. Um, so I was really drawn to the story about swaddling babies. So you have Alisher and Nursultan. Sultan. And they're talking about swaddling a baby. Can you talk to us about that that whole episode and how that kind of connects to your ideas of identity and modernity
2: yeah so um the, the 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 ethnographic setting that are that you're referring to is um that i I lived in a house and um this house was the people living in this house were connected to um, many other places along the The highway. And um, uh, I sort of got into a situation where um, two friends who hadn't seen uh, each other for a long time, they um, uh, came together. One was the host and the other one was coming from a different place along the highway. And um, both of them are fathers and both of them have babies at that uh, point in time. And they discuss um, whether babies um, should be swaddled or they shouldn't. And um, both of them, uh, both of these men had their particular ideas of um, whether swaddle, swaddling is, uh, should be considered modern or not, and whether it's something that is appropriate to do. Uh, maybe not, unlike um, people <laughs> in many other places around the world discuss these questions uh, based on particular um, ideologies and, 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 and strands of thought um, they come from with their personal backgrounds. The interesting um, uh, sort of point is that at one um, um, moment in the encounter, it becomes clear that um, for one man who is um, uh, a Kyrgyz in, in Murgab, um, a very well-educated, um, respect, respected man in the community, um, uh, sort of takes takes the stance that babies should be swaddled because they shouldn't be given um, too much freedom. It would be bad for them. Um, But the interesting point is that this is a man who um, considers himself as extremely modern. And um, the whole family that I've I've lived with, um, they uh, sort of stand for this this whole discourse in a much broader sense, because um, they try to um, embody modern ideals on a daily basis and... um, They're very thorough about this. And at the same time, they see modernity as something that always has to go hand in hand with with traditions that are being um, locally um, reproduced and um, passed on from one generation to the other. And the swaddling um, is, is one of these questions. Now, the other man who comes in in this interaction is um, a Pamiri who comes from Kharok from who stands in um, close connection to NGOs, who in recent years promoted that babies shouldn't be swaddled in this area and uh, that instead they should be given freedom, that they should be able to move, um, which would uh, potentially help their um, development as, as children from babies through toddlers, etc., And he was in this interaction thoroughly convinced that um, the way um, he sort of brings up his children is uh, thoroughly modern and um, is the only way to go really if uh, one wants to sort of achieve a particular uh, type of modernity. And of course, these thoughts come from um, uh, sort of particular influences um, from NGOs, but these NGOs are locally very, very rooted because they they're, um, uh, Islamically inspired NGOs that I'm, um, happy to talk about in more detail, um, later. And, um, they kind of combine, um, a type of modernity that, that, uh, tries to, um, sort of weave in Islamically inspired values with liberalism. And that's where the idea that non-swaddling is the way to go, um, uh, actually comes from so what we see is that on both sides we have um, we have extremely complex what I call entanglements or what Teron ter- probably would call entanglements of modernity, which are um, very difficult to kind of trace back to one particular genealogy, and in this sense they also challenge um, the idea that there is sort of one emanating source of modernity that is uh, being globally distributed, but that these are actually local processes, and that we have to look at local um, contexts that relate to much broader discourses of modernity um, as they develop
0: and thinking about the the Islamic NGOs and you discuss how the reform of Islam along the highway is a critical part of the understanding of modernity and perfecting modernity. Do you see this discussion between Al-Ashar and Nur Sultan as an example of that kind of reforming of Islam and its connection to modernity?
2: Absolutely, um, it is. is It's it's definitely um, connected to um, reform ideas in very very different um, contexts and. Um, let me um, let me take this from <laughs> let me take this from a different <laughs> perspective. I think I just ran myself into um, sort of a one way uh, a one way street. Um, yeah. So um, if we talk about um, Ali Cher in this uh, in this particular context and the ideas of modernity that um, come in there, um, we uh, we see sort of not only um, the liberal strand of thought that is prominent in there, but also um, the influence of um, um, Islamically-defined development discourses that have come to the Palmias um, in the course of the past um, two decades. And in this regard, um, the, the fact that Ali Sher himself is an Ismaili is extremely important. Um, Ismailism is... Um, is a religion that belongs to um, the Shia branch of Islam, and um, it is tied to um, the Aga Khan, who is a hugely influential figure in much of the Palmias. Many people, um, as I pointed out earlier in the Palmias, are Ismaili Muslims, and the Aga Khan is the contemporary um, Ismaili Imam who stands in a long line of um, succession which leads back um, to the Prophet Muhammad eventually. Now, if we want to understand um, what role these institutions that the Aga Khan brought to uh, the Palmiers in the 1990s, um, we certainly have to look at the broader broader region and the history of Ismailism in this broader region. Um, It's uh, pretty difficult to understand um, what is going on in Tajikistan without having sort of um, a, a broader outlook that goes beyond former um, Cold War boundaries. Now, um, there's plenty of Ismailis also living in um, the bordering territories of Tajikistan in Afghanistan, um, China and Pakistan. And historically, there's been lots of interactions um, from this area towards um, British India back uh, back in the early early 20th century, also in the 19th century, and um, developmental connections, um, ideas of modernity actually have o- already penetrated um, the area where, through this connection um, to Bombay and in British India. But obviously, um, for the case of the um, for the Tajik years, um this connection was um, not existing during um, the Soviet time because Soviets prohibited um, these sorts of interactions and they were not interest in, interested in allowing um, their uh, citizens um, contact to their spiritual leader, um, who was actually very loyal to the British Empire. But the important part of the story, um, in order to understand an interaction such as um, the one between Alisher and um, Nur-Sultan, is that at the end of the Cold War in 1992, um, which was an an enormously bloody um, civil war um, that at that time emerged in Tajikistan, the Palmias were um, on the brink of of the famine and Without the intervention of um, the Aga Khan Development Network, the Aga Khan Foundation in particular, um, uh, there probably would have been um, uh, humanitarian catastrophe in the area. And based on this large-scale humanitarian intervention that came into um, this particular historical situation of eastern Tajikistan, um, a lot of development projects emerged um, sort of in the aftermath of that humanitarian interve- intervention. And as soon as the initial humanitarian crisis was over, um, there, there were on the one hand um, infrastructural project, educational projects, healthcare uh, projects, but also religious administration that um, brought religious reform um, to the Palmiers. And that's that's sort of the, the context um, we're talking about um, when we talk about um, reform movements um, in Islamic terms on on the side of the Pamiris. If we talk about the Kyrgyz and in particular um, Sunni Muslims along the Pamir highway, the case is uh, probably even more complex because um, there's no kind of large-scale institutions that um, uh, Kyrgyz could turn to. Um, for the search of answers in an incredibly confusing situation for many people when it comes to religious education, but also when it comes to um, developmental discourse. And in this regard, um, it perhaps uh, makes sense to look at one of the uh, kind of slightly larger movements that have been um, active in the area um, over the past decade. One of them, and this is one I talk about in the book, um, in quite detail because uh, it is of high, um, it is of high political, um, significance is the Tabliri Jamaat, which is a transnational Islamic reform movement, um, which again, and that's a really interesting uh, fact, actually, also emerged under British colonial rule in India and gives people in Central Asia this kind of outlook that is, uh, rarely uh, talked about in terms of Central and South Asia connections. The Tabliri Jama'at is a really globally active movement. Um, it's active in uh, promoting a socially conservative version of Islam. And um, it's a version of Islam that very often appeals also in particular to Sunni Muslims. So, Kyrgyz along the Palmi Highway are... Um, um, have been drawn into um, into uh, sort of content uh, purported by the Tablighi Jamaat very strongly. And this is something that has to do with the broader Central Asian context where uh, the Tablighi Jamaat has been active for at least two decades, if not earlier. And it has been particularly successful in Kyrgyzstan. So the connection um, here is uh, influence coming from Kyrgyzstan. So, people, when I conducted research along the highway, um, starting from 2008, initially, Kyrgyz were extremely enthusiastic about this reform movement. And many um, of my friends, many of my informants, they joined um, preaching tours of the Tabliri Jamaat. It seemed like a really attractive thing to do. Um, Young men grew long beards, they prayed, they stopped drinking. Young women began to wear um, hijab, and people participated in peer groups for religious education. So it's certainly um, a lot of the ideas that are circ- still circling around um, um, in the area are uh, very much based on this influence, because it was large scale um, in terms of in terms of how many people uh, participated um, in tablighi activities in one way or the other. Now. What happened is that shortly after um, I started my field work, um, ta- the government of Tajikistan actually um, um, abolished the movement. And they claimed that um, Tabliri members were literally non-modern terrorists and, um, and they stigmatized um tab- Tabliri members. And um, Kyrgyz in the in the region largely Bought this argument um, from the government, often in order not to get in, into into troubles, um, but also because um, kind of the momentum um, got past it, it. It it became clear that um, the ideas that Abdul promoted promoted um, were uh, sort of great to to motivate people to to go out and talk about um, reform ideas about um, what religious. Um, Uh, activities should look like in the region but um, there was no real funding behind it and it was something um, that couldn't be sustainable in the long run Um, we're now at a situation where people again they look um, for very different um, sources for various sources Um, we can look at the booklets that um, that uh, sort of is important when we uh, when we talk about the Neil Armstrong story um sort of pe- people really read literature and try to le- try to learn from from these booklets um how to make sense of their um of their current situation and of um of uh islam as as a whole but in broad if we if we um compare the situation um sort of between the pamiris who are tied to very powerful transnational Um, development institutions as well as um, uh, religious administration to the situation of the Kyrgyz um, who are uh, sort of orienting towards a much more um, diverse and uh, very often confusing landscape. Um, These are certainly the the main differences that again come in um, into situations um, and encounters such as the one between Nusratan and Alisher.
0: And so thinking about the amount of... So you're talking about the NGOs who are coming in and sort of these outside religious forces that are influencing these, the people along the Pamir Highway. How does that connect to what you touch upon in Chapter 5, the idea of marginality and the relationship to the state and how that shapes their ideas of modernity?
2: Yes, so in... Um, there is clearly um, a juxtaposition here between... The Soviet experience, which um, especially the late Soviet experience, which I guess was uh, for many people, one of a strong state Um, was a state that provided services and it provided a relatively um, coherent framework um, in ideological terms, but also in terms of in terms of security and and. I guess the Tajik Civil War in particular led to really sort of a radical break with this um, idea of uh, what the state can provide. It led to different ideas um, of the state, of state services and of how people assessed political rule um, as something that suddenly is subject to constant change. Um, So The central point that I make in this chapter is that um, people don't really take the state's modernity as granted anymore. And this is something that um, causes irritation along um, the Palmyra Highway because um, the historical experience, at at least for the the later Soviet um, period, was that um, sort of... uh, strong state services and um, a particular representation of modernity on, um, on, on, on the side of the state could be taken for granted. Um, and this is juxtaposed with the image of a state as a rather complex um, and chaotic endeavor, which, um, which is, again, um, confusing. Now, marginality comes in here um, through a range of um, different... Uh, strategies by the state to position um, uh, the Palmiers within the national framework. Um, For instance, um, I talk about language policies uh, as one example for for such uh, processes. Um, I think what is uh, maybe a particularly good example is that people along um, the Parmiah Highway have been using um, Russian as a language of administration um, for many, many decades, many people are um, very proficient in Russian and they also attribute a sense of real global importance to the language. It's a language that, that links them to um, a broader world um, beyond Tajikistan. Now, A few years ago, um, uh, the Tajik government uh, implemented, I would say, a rather hasty law that um, eventually made Tajik the sole language of administration. And this, as a a result, turned um, a large number of uh, very qualified and experienced officials really into um, functional illiterates. These people um, ceased to understand um, new laws that were issued. They ceased to understand uh, regulations um, that came from Dushanbe, the capital of Tajikistan. And uh, they had to pay Huge fines for submitting their reports in any other language than Tajik, and most people still submitted their reports in Russian because they um, they couldn't um, they couldn't just couldn't write them in in Tajik, and um, this really created enormous costs because either they had to pay fines or they had to find translators who could understand and issue documents, and this is a. Um, a problem really also for ordinary citizens in their interaction with state institutions, especially when we talk about um, paper interaction uh, with state institutions. Because, of course, local officials are still proficient in local languages, but the way documents have to be submitted and um, documents are issued is basically happening in a language that people don't understand anymore. And this... Um, Uh, Creates a sense of being in the state's margins, um, not only in an administrative um, sense, but really also if we talk about education, if we talk about access to state jobs, um, if we talk about um, um, the possibility to actually participate in the political uh, process in the capital, etc. So these are um, the political side of things if we talk about marginality. Another example um, that I discuss in the book, and that I think is um, it's it's actually really, really important, um, especially at this point of time, uh, point in time, is trade with China. Uh, Trade with China has absorbed the Tajik economy um, really enormously um, and to a large extent over the past decade. Um, We have a huge, um, huge percentage of the um, um, of the state budget is is based on. Um, this income, and um, we also see that the political elite makes a lot of money um, out of these trade connections. But um, we also see that people in the Palmias who literally live at the Chinese borders, are pretty much excluded from um, these opportunities by a set of regulations um, um, implemented by state institutions. For instance, um, uh, people along the highway find it um, extremely difficult to to do cross border trade because of um, visa regulations. Um, that really forces them to travel to the capital, uh, which is a thousand kilometers um, on very bumpy roads, expensive roads, to the west, and fly into China instead of being able to cross into China from their um, from their border towns. Now, for people along the highway, this um, Uh, situation has really contributed um, also to their image of the state as somewhat backwards as a kind of a trading enterprise that really doesn't involve them um, much. And it is also something that probably ties in with Soviet discourses um, at this point in time, because individual trade was, um, of course, uh, highly stigmatized in the Soviet era. And um, for people along the Palmier Highway. This is an assessment that is still resonates, it's still valid. It seems something that you shouldn't do if you're an honest citizen. Um, now, obviously, um, this assessment has also to do with the fact that they actually cannot participate in the most profitable trade-related activities um, with China. Now, um, instead, what they do um, in this situation is that they often have to import basic everyday necessities from the city of Osh in southern Kyrgyzstan, and these necessities, uh, these goods, they also um, come from China, but they're imported from China to Kyrgyzstan and then sort of brought with um, via petty trade to to places along the Palmyra Highway, making these goods enormously more expensive than um, direct imports from China. So... Um, if we talk about marginality here, we see um, um, economic margin- marginalisation um, at play, and as uh, connections with um, trade connections and other investments um, become stronger um, between Tajikistan and China, this is of of course a question that um, is of really um, high importance to the people. Along the highway, and uh, for them, there has to be a solution at one point, um, in order to participate in in these activities and not get sidelined. And it is a, a kind of if we if we talk about um, marginality and the state here, um, the result of these processes is that um, narratives of political rule in Tajikistan. Um, as uh, sort of seen locally, is their their narratives of an incapable, really non-modern state with a chaotic, despot as its rulers, and that's essentially sort of um, the way people very often express it um, these days. And this is a an image that is often juxtaposed with um, sort of the yearning for an ideal, benevolent strongman president, which isn't there, isn't there, um, at this point in time.
0: Well, Till, thank you so much for being on the show today. I think we learned a lot about Azan on the moon and the fascinating premier region. So I have to ask you the famous last question of the new books network. What are you working on now?
2: Yeah. So, uh, I probably <laughs> talked already a little bit about, um, um, newer things that, uh, aren't all in the book. Um, so, during my research in the Palmias, I, um, I did not only come into touch with NGOs, I, um, uh, which are uh, globally organized. I also came um, across uh, cross-border relations to um, neighboring countries. And as I mentioned, I started to research in um, in Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, and China. And there are really plenty of um, under-researched historical uh, um, historical and contemporary connections between the Tajik Pamirs and what I uh, sort of vaguely describe as Greater Badakhshan, which um, includes uh, smaller parts of Afghanistan, uh, China, and then a much larger region in northern Pakistan. So in 2012, um, I began uh, fieldwork in Pakistan on these issues. So I moved southwards from Central Asia a little bit and Uh, What I do my ongoing research project is that I look at these connections um, uh, in particular through the prism of charitable and humanitarian institutions that um, have emerged from Muslim networks in the course of the 20th century. I've talked about Aga Khan institutions in this regard, which are, um, uh, of course, very important for Tajikistan and also other places in Central Asia especially in Kyrgyzstan, there's um, also large-scale investments um, going on there. Um, So I've mentioned them, but there are also other Muslim institutions that um, I think are very important to understand how uh, the broader region has been um, shaped in terms of social and physical landscapes and through infrastructure investments, um, healthcare projects, educational mobility, etc and um i think it's a it's a good moment in time to um research these questions because um as i previously mentioned um there is a lot of talk about um chinese investments in the region and how they're going to change um the area not only tajikistan but the other mentioned um places as well and what I um, would like to pursue with my current project is that I um, would like to look at these processes through the lens of um, locally grounded institutions and their visions of um, of humanitarianism of development of how life in the region um, should be lived how society should be structured and there's a long long social history behind this and um I really plan to write about, um, yeah, largely unknown institutions and individuals that really have um, pursued links um, between Central and South Asia, but also to other places in Asia, in Europe and the Middle East for a very long time.
0: Well, that sounds like a really interesting project. And I know we can't wait to read about it. So Till, thank you for being with us today and take care.